Hello friends, welcome to Pablo's channel, the place where Pablo explores the inner world, um, you know, spontaneously. I could be doing an interview, I could be reading a story, I could be maybe free thinking sometimes, it depends what mood I'm in. But for some reason, in this moment in time, which is the uh, 28th of November, 2018, in my flat, my apartment, 10 Normal Road, on a rainy afternoon, I've decided to continue reading um, from Gerald Hurd's Weird, The Best weird stories I so enjoyed reading The Great Fog in the last episode that I want to continue reading the other ones um, exp why I'm doing it simple answer is because I enjoy it um, and if you're listening to it you must be enjoying it too nothing um Nothing clever about it, really, is it? Anyway, Folly of Bliss. That is the motto from jo Joseph Campbell. Folly of Bliss. That's the message to everyone I meet. The bliss will take you where you want to be. So, enough of my babble. Let's continue within this great book I bought a while back. I forget when I bought it. I think it must have been at least ten years ago. Uh, the drama on the best weird stories of Gerald Hurd. And what I'm going to read, uh, the story I'm going to read about is The Wingless Victory, which is about mutant penguins in Antarctica. Now, I haven't got a clue where this is going to take me. I hope it takes me into a wonderful dimension. But I'm always assured Gerald Hurd will do that. So here we go. Sit back, enjoy the background music, and enjoy the story. See what it's got to say. Here we go. The Wingless Victory. I was looking for copy Moby Dick stuff. I'm a descriptive journalist. Now, that whaling is about to join Purchase pilgrims and Eldorado hunting. I thought the time had come to meet the last whalers. I've landed something, but whether it's a whale of a story or simply a snark, I can't make up my mind. As a yarn, straight stuff, simple narrative, but the narrator... There's a small public house near Whopping Stairs where old masters will drop in if they're on the Thames. That was the place where I used to go angling for whale stories. I own, I'd found pretty well nothing. Even before it was seized to pay well, whaling was really large-scale knacking, butchery, 
That evening, no one who'd actually ever smelled blubber had come in. And the few clients had all gone except one man. I'd come to the conclusion that my search was no good and that I'd better think up some other subject for a write-up. Certainly, the last hanger on in that doleful little bar looked a very unlikely source for a story. It was clear he wasn't a master of anything. Then, something made me look at him twice. He was a lightly built fellow, pretty obviously down and out. But in some odd way, in spite of the year of wastrel, uh, W-A-S-T-R-E-L, and flotsam, which his clothes and carriage pretty clearly bespoke, there was one little oddity that didn't fall in with the commonplace formula of failure. And, though it was a small thing, it caught my attention. It was a small thing, but it was co- it was odd in such a makeup. It was his complexion. Shabby and shambling as he was, he ought to have been withered and ill-coloured. He wasn't. Out of his sordid suit emerged a skin which had about it a wholly inconsistent freshness. He saw me looking at him. I offered him a drink and he shifted over on the bench beside me. There was no doubt about it. His skin was like a boy's. And now that he was within a couple of feet of me, I could see another odd little thing. It was not only smooth and tanned like well-cared-for leather, but it was covered with a peculiar down. I found myself wondering whether he could ever be have, could ever have shaved. But he interrupted my rather, my rather personal inventory. Perhaps he felt self-conscious at my look. Perhaps he felt he ought to do something in exchange for the drink. You're interested in voyages? He asked rather tentatively. I want to get to the last of the whaling stories, I told him. Afraid I can't help you there. But, he hesitated, you wouldn't be interested in polar exploration. I remarked that whaling led in that direction. He seemed to wish to talk, gave me the impression I'd be doing him a service by listening. You haven't done that? I asked half encouragingly. Again he replied with a question. Do you remember an expedition when one man had to drop out to give the others a chance to get through? That's a common predicament. I was saying when a particular incident suddenly flashed through my mind. You're not? Perhaps not. Perhaps not. He was suddenly evasive. When, I t- when I've told you what I've been through, 
You won't care who I am. And perhaps you'll even understand why I don't either. Suddenly he seemed to become alive. He glanced at me almost humorously. The ancient mariner only wanted to talk about his albatross. Well, I want to talk about a bird. But polar, physically, to an albatross. To hurry him on, I tried to pin him down. Polar? I asked. But not north, he answered. No, I guessed. Then he was off. Antarctica. The only, the last, unexplored continent. The North got men first, and what did it give? Not a continent, simply more sea. Haven't we enough? Three-fifths of this earth's covered with sea. To hurry him on, I tried to pin him down. Sorry. Well, Antarctica isn't any better. It's land. Frozen land no better than frozen sea. True enough, that's the point. Still, I don't know if it was true. Perhaps it was a delirium. But if so, how I hear... Well, that's your problem now. That's for you to answer. Here it is straight. You know, I just walked out. There was a blizzard on. It's good, of course, as deaths go. You just plug ahead, don't have to bother where you're going, and when you feel numb, you settle down, and nature, sub-zero nature, the master anaesthetist does the rest. Well, I bumbled and stumbled, crawled a bit and sank. I woke gradually. It wasn't painful, so I knew I was dead. Another thing made me sure. I was moving, heaving, with a queer pulsing jerk. That, I thought, that's the way you feel your last heartbeats. As though they were something outside you. Because you're already more than half out of your body. But, if so... Those jerks ought to have got weaker. Instead, they grew stronger. I was being pulled along with big swinging jerks. I must be on a sled, I thought. It was then that I began to give up the deaf idea. There was only one alternative. Rescue. I tried to shift, but found myself fast. Finally, I worked a goggle out. I, sorry, I worked a goggle so I could see through a slit in the wrappings sideways. The blizzard had stopped. The stars were dazzlingly near. You remember it was just at the end of the season when we were lost. We got late on our schedule. I lay a while, peering out watching a large star hanging clearly above the edge of the plain, over which we tramped all those days. 
And now I was pulsing along. I was just turning over and over in my mind. What the dickens could be the team that could pull the way I was being pulled? When suddenly I stopped dead from wondering about that and switched to asking where. For that bright star had crept down, down towards the horizon. Don't you see? I knew my bet. I knew my bearings that amount, you, you bet. I was lying on my right side. The star was setting. We weren't going north. We were going south. Again, I felt I must be dead or mad. Anyhow, I was frightened out of my acquiescence. I forced my head up a bit so my goggles could get a line ahead. What I saw kept my neck cricked till it nearly broke. Yes, I was strapped to a sled heaped over with some wrapping. It was certainly effective enough, for I felt no excessive cold, though it must have been as cold as Dante's hell. What did send me cold right through me, though, was my, my retinue. Of course, the sled jerked because the team that drew it literally bounded ahead. The going was smooth enough, but the animals that pulled sprang the head with such odd leaps that, if I'd been sitting up, I'd have been thrown off backwards. But, though the team was odd, the team stirs held my attention. There were four of them. They ran alongside the dogs. They were stocky figures with short boots, a curious tailed coat, and, I suppose, because of the frightful cold, queer long-nosed masks, I could see the light of the quarter moon, which was low behind us, gleaming on their masks as they turned their heads a bit to and fro as they ran. They were so wrapped up that my alarm for myself was almost forgotten in my amazement at the speed at which they ran. They seemed almost to skim along the frozen ground with their thickly swathed, swathed arms held out a little from their bulky bodies. Still, I don't think your anthropological interest in the physical prowess of any kind of savage would have kept your mind off yourself if you'd looked, as I naturally did, a little farther ahead. There was no longer a possible shadow of doubt about it. We were bundling along as fast as any dog teams ever scurried. I was tied up as neatly as a corpse and bound, not for rescue, home and glory, no. Bound for the ultimate cold storage, the absolute refrigeration. I hadn't been wrong about that star, no such luck. The view ahead left no doubt, we were climbing up a vast slope. I must say to my credit, that I spared a moment from the misery of my predicament, to admire the speed which my captors and their team kept up, breasting that slope. 
I may have been wrong about east and west, not about north and south. You know, Antarctica rises, sweeping up from the northern coast, and the great ice barrier to that awe-inspiring range from which tower those two most terrible peaks in the world, the volcanoes aptly named Erebus and Terror. Infernal fire blasting out on infernal cold. Poor little life shudders away as these two ancient enemies rush out at each other. Well, there we were, swinging along up that slope to where those awful bastions of the inferno towered above us. The most modest fancy that flitted through my pulsing head was that some mad, unknown Eskimo cannibals were whisking off this windfall of fresh meat to broil it in some convenient lava crack. I suppose I was terribly exhausted. I must have dozed off because I had failed to keep my look out. Anyhow, next time I squinted ahead, we had made wonderful progress. The team was still bounding ahead, the flapping teamsters still prancing along beside them, and we were far up the slope at the top of which I felt sure my sorry miseries would end. That was true enough. But truth was stranger than my wildest dread. The jerking was extremely tiring in itself and, of course, I was nearly dead with fatigue to start with. It doesn't matter whether you call it a dead faint or a sleep of complete exhaustion. My next waking did what I'd certainly have bet was impossible. It beat my first and beat it hollow. So hollow that though I remembered my start at the first come to, at that second I thought again that now at last it must be true. This is death. This kind of grim nonsense can only take place after death. After one has taken leave of the last vestiges of the world of common sense. It couldn't fit into this earth anyhow, anywhere. This bad, boldly, is what I saw. I was still more or less on my back. So that's why I first noticed the sky. There wasn't a star in it. It was all fogged over. Nothing odd in that, you'll say. But wait a minute. It was all fog. But a fog such as I've never seen before or since. For a moment, I thought my sight had gone. That perhaps in the afterlife, everything was vague and misty. If I am alive, I reflected, I've lost the power to focus. It was, how shall I put it, like looking up at the flies and the transformation scene of a pantomime. Only all out of focus. There was wave upon wave of fringes, skirts, curtains, all of some filmy, faintly fluted draping. They rustled 
as they undulated. The sound was so quiet and natural, since I couldn't see them clearly enough to judge their distance. I thought they must be perhaps, they must be near perhaps 20 or 30 feet above my head. But if the form was ambiguous, the colour was. Well, I have to work that word pretty hard, amazing. You know the colours of a large vacuum tube when currents in it? The whole of what I was looking up at was flushing and pulsing as it, as it was washed by these tides of uncanny colour. Perhaps it was the word pulsing that made me realise that the actual pulsing had stopped. Yes, I was at a standstill, or rather, at a lie still. Perhaps it was dumb to wish I could see what all those eerie searchlights were falling on. I tried to raise my head, and at once felt a curious broad hand helping me. But what I saw made me forget the odd feel. Forget the odd sky. Oh, I could see well enough. There was nothing wrong with my eyes. If anything was wrong, it was with my brain. I was still lying on the sled and my goggles and wrappings were gone but there was no need for them it was warm damply warm and there was no doubt that I was still out of doors why that made me go back again to the belief that I was dead gone for good from this world I don't know, though neither of the other places are said to be muggy, are they? But I couldn't keep my mind on the climate, any more than on the lightning. For I wasn't alone. Standing close about me, looking down on me, but with their long-nosed masks still on, so that I couldn't judge their expression. Were my captors... Rescuers? Kidnappers? What you will? I gazed at their snow kit with the dull amazement of a very small child looking for the first time at a diver in his inflated suit and valve-fitted helmet. And then my amazement turned to dismay. Dismay. Disgust. Yes. Horror. I was, you see, trying to make sense of these people, to pierce, as it were, their disguise, trying to judge behind their masks what their intentions were towards me. And then it was as bad as seeing ghosts. I suddenly saw that they weren't disguised. They weren't wrapped up. They hadn't any clothes on, not a stitch. Then, what did they have on? These bulky, 
booted, maxed fellows? I say again, his voice cracked with a very convincing accent of dismay. They had no clothes on, and yet, true enough, they were able, just as I saw them equipped then, to trot about in sub-zero cold. You've guessed it. No, you couldn't. I know. I struggled. I don't know how long against believing my eyes, but the light, though pulsing, was like a torrent of floodlighting. There was, I tell you, never a moment's doubt as to what I was seeing. The resistance came from my owning up to the clear meaning of what I saw. I struggled with all my might to believe that I was looking at masked kidnappers, inquisitors, anything you like, however dangerous and dreadful, as long as it was human. And all the time my eyes kept on saying to me, Yes, and will you believe me? The last unnerving touch, my nose too was saying it. What are you looking at? These things that are close enough for you to smell are big, giant big, bigger than most men, but not men. They're big bipeds, big stalking birds. Yes, that was it. Under that insanely coloured sky, as though in some grotesque glass-lidded aviary, I lay, shrunken like Alice after she'd eaten the mushroom, looked down on by those large, powerful birds. I own, at that, my last vestiges of interest in topography fled. I remember calling instead and most infelicitously um, Wells Grim Story Epironis Islands Epionis Island that's A-E-P-Y-O-R-N-I-S about the man who came within an ice sorry who came within an ace of being pecked to death by his pet a giant bird And I was these creatures captured. They swayed their heads little. Their glassy eyes regarded me. But what I regarded was the way the glittering, very coloured light ran up and down their long, strong, polished, pointed beaks. I don't know whether the next thing was a relief. It ought to have been. For at least... It made clear that my immediate fear wasn't going to be practised on me without delay. But the way I learned that was itself so shocking that I think I was more upset than ever. I suppose we felt madness more than pain or death. And this forced me. I felt one step nearer madness. These creatures weren't disguised men. I faced up to that shock, a nasty enough one, in all conscience. And then there was another one, Titan, as one might say, the other side of the jaw of my reason. 
For this shock was just the reverse of the first. I couldn't resist the evidence of my ears as I tried to hold out against that of my eyes. These creatures, these birds, were talking to each other, talking about me. Of course, I couldn't understand the word. But when half a dozen stout old gentlemen standing around a man on his back look at him, point fat, flipperish hands at him, and then turn and quack at each other, and then look at him and quack again, well, then I say it's no use. The game's up. They are birds. Which is bad enough, and they are discussing his disposal. Of course. You see, what is coming, don't you? Why, after a few well-considered, yes, I know, they were, remarks, the senior and gravest of all the company turned to me again and requested, requested my cooperation. There couldn't be a doubt about that. Well... I did you'd have done. Sorry, I did what you'd have done. I nodded, coughed, cleared my throat. And believe me, after that exhibition of myself, of my superior human readiness and address, I felt I was the dumb bird. They weren't dumb by any means. Again, they considered... Finally, I felt that queer paw on my back and smelled that queer musky bird smell. And then I was assisted to my feet. Of course, I felt extremely odd. Odd beyond words. I think the air itself is odd there. Through the bird smell, I could catch quite strong whiffs of sulphur and ozone ozone. Those people have any sense of smell. They have rather different senses from ours. But I'll get to that later. Of course, I was dead beat. Though, they had already evidently given me some sort of cordial before I... before I quite came to. There was a queer, keen taste in my mouth and throat. Anyhow, you wait till you find yourself strolling along, courteously assisted by two giant birds. As you can hear, the music has changed slightly because voices were coming in. But anyway, back to the story. There was a queer, keen taste in my mouth and throat. Anyhow, you wait till you find yourself strolling along, courteously assisted by two giant birds, who, metaphorically and actually, since they stood about seven feet high, are carrying on a conversation over your head. You see, if you won't feel a bit giddy, still, I noticed quite a few things. For instance, we were going along a path not much of a path, but quite a well-beaten trail. You couldn't see far, because just then the atmosphere was so iridescent. 
It wasn't what you'd call fog, though. As I've said, the temperature must have been over 60, and the humidity was high. It was the strange flickering light, as if the whole ill-defined sky was a sort of rainbow, badly off-colour, and quite unable to pull itself together into a decent arch with properly outlined bands. But interest in general meteorology was again brought back to earth with a bump. Right ahead of me loomed houses. There weren't much of an architecture. Sorry, they weren't much as architecture. They appeared to be built of uncut stones, piled together with no clear courses. But when I was close enough, I saw that the stones were all set in hard mortar and were well smoothed and fitted. When we reached the first of these huts, my companions wheeled around and gently ushered me inside the place. One stayed with me while the other disappeared. When he returned, he was holding a covered dish in his bill. There was a small table in the room, but no chair, nothing at all to sit on or to lie on for that matter. Just that small table, nothing else. Though the bareness of the room's four walls was relieved by a kind of alcove in one place, a sort of doorless and shelfless cupboard. The creature which had come in with the dish placed it on the table and deftly whisked off the cover. It was a large soup plate full of what looked like a thick broth. My two guardians looked at me, bowed with an odd mixture of the ridiculous and the stately, and marched out. I was hungry. The broth smelled good. It tasted better. It was also very filling as there was nowhere to sit and nowhere to go after eating the broth. I lay on the floor and fell asleep. I'd become used to sleeping on the ground, you know, half over on your face, your hands curled around your head. I don't know how long I slept. I woke to find the light, the same quivering but just as bright, and of course my watch was long dead. Looking up, I found the guardian looking at me, with the expressionless attention which these creatures had. I scrambled to my feet, and he bowed low to the doorless doorway. The window had no glazing or framing either. I was quite ready to see all I could. I felt refreshed and was more curious than anxious now. But he led me away from, what shall I call it, the penguin? We followed a path which led straight towards a steep cliff, the top of which was lost in the iridescent mist. When we reached the cliff, we saw a cleft in it. This turned out to be the opening of a very narrow canyon. Its walls, not more than some six feet apart, 
growing up pretty sheer till along the top one could see a ribbon of pulsing light. The sky as it appeared in that odd place. Our path which was smooth sand. The bed of some stream that once had issued through this cleft. I suppose opened into a small amphitheatre. After perhaps perhaps five or six loops and bends, the place was small, but up till then, it was the most wonderful spot I'd ever seen. Talk of the Forty Thieves Cave in Alibaba. All the rocks were of different colours, but that's simply to start with. The amazing thing was, that they all seemed to be lit from within. They were partly translucent and were partly glowing with a queer radiance that seemed to flush out from their crystalline structure. Then I realised what, of course, it must be. They were fluorescing. The queer sky above must, for some reason, have been making these queer minerals. Just the Labradorites and other such do, send back a kind of light echo, a sort of secondary radiation. But then nearly every rock seemed to have its own flush and pulse of colour. You'd never seen colour until you've seen stuff like this. And that wasn't the end of the show which was being put on for me to gape at. Out of these glowing rocks, with their iridescent bloom and glow, and over them flowed streams of streaming water in colours. Waters like champagne, like burgundy, like chartreuse, purple, gold, amethyst. These cascades formed in fonts and pools. They tumbled at their weirs, which heaped up foam of every colour and tint. The rivulet flowed off musically into culverts and grottoes, in the dusk of which they shone with a glowing phosphorescence. The floor of this domeless cave of wonder was a sand that sparkled like gold and diamond dust. Yet, there was nothing harsh or garish about any of this close-packed splendour. The entire was literally bathed in an opalescent mist. A pale, opalescent mist. From the waters rose reefs of steam, crossed with shimmered, half-formed rainbows. I turned to my guide. All he did was to wave a flipper towards the bubbling terraces. Then he turned about, stalked off, and vanished around the first turn of the canyon cleft. My wish, and what I took to be his intention, chimed. I was out of my clothes and into one of those pools before his stiff tail feathers had whisked around the corner of a coral rock. 
I can't say I've ever bathed before or since. In comparison with that, he sought for a poetic word in which to cloak his bare and timid emotion. So, that laming, why, one can only wallow out here. The quality of that water, it tingled. Tiny bubbles pricked your skin. It was like being combed, massaged, relaxed, stimulated, buoyed and plunged. Needle sprayed and warm packed all at once. I shouted for sheer physical joy, and the strange polished rocks through the rush of the waters gave back strange harmonics of my core. Out of pure animal spirits, I freshed the foaming water, and with my hand shook the glass smooth sides of the pool in which I lay. A huge stalactite rose from the pool's lip, depending from and seeming to support an absurdly fretted gothic canopy overhead. I hit the smooth shaft of my palm, a beautiful deep note as of a great bell sounded through the place. I laughed like a child at the lovely joke of it all, then through my modest pink curtains of mist. I caught sight of my guide, peeping discreetly around the edge of the rose-red cleft behind which he had retired. Like an insect concealing itself in the petals of a tropical flower, I felt gayer, more trustful, more adventurous than I've felt since I was free, and my nurse was giving me my bath. I'm coming, I shouted, quite certain in a way that this was all a Christmas night dream after seeing the pantomime and getting home and looking over my presents and playing with the new rubber duck in the bath. And so to bed with Nurse having just tucked me in. I skipped out of my front font and felt so light that my sense of being out of my body was quite convincing. I felt clothed in a new kind of vitality. My skin and flesh seemed glowing and supple, and all of it as strong as muscle. I felt as though I, too, must be glowing, fluorescing, pouring out the vitality with which that fountain of youth had charged me. I looked down at my body. I could have believed that I was lit by an eternal fire. Then I saw, lying on that dazzling sand, one stain, the wretched clouts in which I had been wrapped and must now wrap up again. I put on my wretched, stiff, soiled togs, but their greasy stiffness was revolting to my skin which seemed to have a new sense of touch. As I crossed the arena floor, my guide peeped out again. 
If he hadn't, I don't know if I could have found my way out of the place. The fluted walls concealed the entrance so effectively that it seemed as though the rocks had closed behind the entrance, as in the Alibaba cave. Every yard of the place, sheer sides, was fretted and moulded. He trotted ahead of me, leading me back to my hut and bound me in. Stood with me back, stood with his back to me, blocking the door and looking out into the street. Again, I gathered this was his tact. But now, lying on the table where the soup bowl had been, was an odd-looking object. On picking it up, I discovered it was a cloak, beautifully light and weight, more delicate than silk to the touch, smelling of musk, pale grey in colour, and woven in some strange way onto small feathers. I have never worn any kind of garment which seemed less like something one puts on and more like something that grows as naturally in one's hair out of one's skin. The contrast of the change from my coarse stiff wrappings that were fettering my cleansed body into this cloak gave me a feeling almost as delicious as I had when I had first plunged into the rock pool. I'd hardly thrown the robe around myself before the guide twirled about, then made that sweep with his head and stumped off ahead of me. One thing, at least, was now clear. I wasn't being treated as a captive. Indeed, so great was this, this people's courtesy, that I wasn't even being treated as a curiosity. Though I could imagine the kind of attention a huge, misshapen, feathered man would arouse if led on foot through the main streets of one of our hamlets. As I went down the street, I saw plenty of these strange beings about, but none, save an occasional chick or two, even turned its head as I passed. (coughs) Of course, whether their feathers, excuse me. Of course, whether their features showed surprise or humour, I couldn't then judge. A bird's bill is just the most pointed opposite of what novelists call their heroine's lips. Tremulous liquid and all that. I didn't, however and have much time to think over this. For within a few hundred yards, I'd been brought to a hut twice the size of any of the others. Of any of the others. Which ended this small street or lane. Had two steps in front of it and a doorway. But again, no door. It had two steps in front of it and a high doorway, but again no door. We passed over the threshold and in the dusk within I saw that a sort of court was sitting. My guide waited just inside the threshold and so of course did I.
Six creatures were drawn up along one side and six on the other. And at the end, on a slightly raised platform facing us, the chairman, or chairbird, was standing. One of the six on my left had been standing forward, quacking to the rest. But directing his remarks to the chair, as we entered, he drew back into line and the chairman apparently answered him. Then, after a pause, the chair must have said something that closed the proceedings, for the six brace, pair by pair, walked out, three on each side of us, and we were left facing the president. He quacked again, and my guide, bowing to him and then to me, waved me forward. At that, my guide turned away. The chairman came down off his one-stop dais, that's D-A-I-S, dais, dais, and I was directed to a small doorway in the side wall. These people are austere, I thought. They don't allow any sitting, even at public business. But when I entered the room off the council chamber, I realised, as by then I suppose, I ought to have guessed that the absence of chairs in the public rooms and in the others was not a hardship or a discourtesy. This, this species never sat except when hatching eggs. That alcove in the room I was given, I found that every house had one. It was a sort of sentry box affair. In it, these creatures would stand slightly inclined while they slept. That was the only kind of resting place they required. In spite of the fact that I saw they always meant to be considerate, I thought this interview was going to be a little embarrassing, for even with the best will in the world, how were we to get on? Yet, believe me, there wasn't a hitch from the start. As soon as we were closeted together, the chairbird bowed again and beckoned me to one of the window sills. The room had two windows opposite each other. He indicated that he wished me to be seated. Evidently, he had tumbled to the fact that I belonged to a species that didn't find it comfortable never to be off its feet. As soon as he saw me settled, he caught my eye. Then, with a sweep of his flipper, or perhaps I'd better be anthropomorphic and say with his hand, and for it was a hand with three very stout, but, as I soon learned, deft fingers. He pointed to a bowl of water, which was standing on the sill of the window opposite. As he did so, he looked quickly at me, with his head turned to one side. Somehow, the gesture was quite unmistakable. Bold, I said. He listened for perhaps a couple of seconds, and then, as clear as a Congo grey parrot, he said ringingly, bold, and pointed to the water in it. Water, I called. With scarcely a second to pause, he echoed, water. With just my inflection. We had an hour or more of this, 
as quick as that. We ran over every kind of object he could point to. The stones, the room was walled and floored with my eyes, teeth, hair, his feathers, bill and feet. He seemed never to forget a word and hardly ever asked me to repeat one. And, would you believe it, at the close of our interchange, he made up some quite good sentences, ending with, We two here when you second time rested. I felt that a linguist having that sort of power was quite right in wasting no time in trying to teach me the language of the birds. After he had spoken his farewell sentence, he relaxed from the somewhat bent attention with which to make certain of hearing the noise, hearing the sounds I made. He had craned forward his seven-foot stature. He resumed his stately stance, emitted a kind of soft whistle, and there was my guide looking discreetly around the doorway. We all bowed to one another again, and off I went, led back to my room, to my supper. This time, some kind of queer, but delicately flavoured fruits with a slight tang of resin. Queer, having desert fruits at the South Pole. And when I looked at them closely, it was perhaps even queerer to realise that, as far as I could judge, they didn't belong to any genus of plant I'd ever seen. I remember thinking that, after all, since this was a continent more on its own than even Australia or New Zealand, it would have quite different sorts of plant life. Sorts of plant life. But then, how the mischief could they have developed themselves there? Here, sorry. Developed themselves here. Well, it was clear there were so many problems here that if I were to try to solve them without more information, I should just worry myself blue. I was among friends. If friendship meant taking care not only of one's wants, but of one's feelings as well. The supper of fruit was not only varied and very palatable, but so quick were my host to realise my human limitations, that I found the bed in the corner of the room, or should I call it a nest? It had been made for me from a number of cloaks, such as the one they had given me to wear. The next day, my drill was repeated. That wonderful wash, then breakfast, and once more to the courthouse. The first hour was hardly over before the chairbird was doing almost as much, as much talking as I. He made me understand what their actions certainly suggested, that I was welcome. He told me how he did it with still scanty vocabulary that he commanded with almost as much a wonder as the fact that already he used. With scarcely an error or a slip of forgetfulness, several thousand words, I reckon, that an expedition, which was a rare event with them, had been out in the farther world. I began to blush, I admit, when I tumbled to the fact that what he was trying to tell me was that he and his people had been watching our expedition with some trepidation. 
We, of course, had had no idea that we were being observed. They had felt that we were a possible pebble. But after they had seen one of the party ready to go out to his death in order that the others might have a chance to survive, they concluded that any creature which could behave in that way should not only be secured, regardless of any possible danger to the rescuers, but such a creature might understand their way of life and give them useful sidelights on it. That fact was all that seemed to interest them. Why we were exploring and where we came from did not seem to excite his curiosity in the slightest. What seemed his wish was that I should understand something about them. He remarked that if I would be so good, he would like to practice human speech with me until he became tolerably proficient in it. There is much which we need to see through others' eyes than ours, he said, and that will take time and many new words. It did take many new words, but far less time than I would have supposed. Every day, our lesson brought us to further mastery of human speech, and soon he was as much at home in abstract terms as he was in concrete words. Indeed, more at home than I myself was. Certainly, that bird had a mastermind and evidently had thought very clearly in his own tongue about subjects which were, most of them, just on the fringe of my thoughts. Time and again, I just didn't know the words for some thought he wanted to express in English. So you can imagine what happened. We built up a sort of pigeon. That's uh, P-I-D-G-I-N. Or should I say, Penguin English. Basic English for birds. I'm sure if I could remember some of his clever phrases and coined words, you'd see how apt they were. One of the first things he explained to me, really as a kind of exercise for himself, to see if I could talk freely about subjects that needed a lot of rare words and abstract terms was why they had given me these grand baths. Of course, I'd seen that his bird people didn't wash, didn't need to. It had a wonderful preening drill. And after that, their plumage was as glossy as if it had been varnished. Your bath, he explained, was something in the nature of an experiment. We felt for reasons which I will explain more fully when you possess more facts and I more words, that you might be incommoded by this peculiar climate unless we could do something to give you a kind of cover which you lacked, something to take the place of our plumage. We had, of course, known for some time that their radioactive springs, in which we wanted you to bathe, did have a remarkably beneficial effect on the skin thinly coated non-birds. We find that they enable the skin to tolerate and even benefit from due to violet light of the sky. Indeed, if I may say so, you have already benefit, benefited from the treatment. 
he was right. My skin had been in pretty good poor shape after our hardships. And with a sudden rush of a flush, if I may say so, had taken on a new kind of smooth suppleness. Indeed, I believe I've never quite lost the good effects of that treatment. All the time I was there, I felt extraordinarily well. Blood and skin seemed to glow. Later I understood how necessary this was, not merely to make me feel fit, but to screen me from danger, which I did not suspect. I don't know how long it took, maybe it was a fortnight. I don't think it was more, before this fine old creature felt that he had enough command of my language to launch into a discussion with me of general topics, or what he called the explanation that I required. We had met for our morning session, and as he'd like me to begin, I started that day by saying that the place was rather a surprise. I considered that a courteous understatement. His only reply was a question, and ourselves even more so. By the way, I learned by that time how to recognise the way humour could be shown in, other, in their otherwise expressionless faces. They would flicker that third eyelid which birds have in the corner of their eyes. This was a kind of solemn wink they gave when they were joking. I allowed that, perhaps, that I had been a bit surprised by that too. My surprise, of course, had been acute to the point of alarm. But I believe that that old bird, though he didn't even frighten me, did surprise me more than anything I'd seen or heard before in that unbelievably odd place. Certainly, his next remark gave no quarter to my self-assurance. I had told him, as a sort of introduction to some questions on my part, that we humans had had a great imaginative writer who had hated mankind, with good reason, and therefore had written a story about an imaginary place where men were beasts and horses were supermen. My companion asked me a little about horses. What sort of animal they were, and what their relationship was with us. For a moment he thought over what I had told him, and then he remarked, Then they are really of the same stock as yourselves, warm-blooded and mammals, but creatures which have lost their hands. I was surprised, need I say, that this bird knew about evolution, but simply confirmed his remark by telling him about the descent of the horse from a small five-toed animal. He reflected a moment more and then added, That was a mistake of your storyteller. Of course, it is clear that a horse would have to be, must now be, a stupid animal, even if kind. Now, if your imagineer had had real insight, he would have chosen, for example, a bird. I thought this was pretty vain, but of course, quite natural. Every creature thinks it is the highest type. He guessed my thought. I know that sounds to you a typical bird fancy. Being a bird, of course, I think we are the form in which life is best expressed. 
So perhaps you will excuse me if I make my case an Avery apology. His third eyelid slid, a grey shadow for a moment, over his bright, steady eye, and then he continued. After I have told you the story, I believe that you will agree with me that the history of our great order, the Order of Birds, proves my thesis. You know, I see the main outline. There are only two great divisions of life, you and ourselves. Both came up from the cold-blooded stupidity of the lizards. We are the only two alternative ways of answering life's question. Would you know more? Would you not only live but understand? Not only enjoy but also create? But if you will forgive me, we are the more vital, more more energetic. We probably started out on the path of continuous consciousness. That continuous consciousness that warm blooded compels. That warm blood compels. Long before your first mammal ancestor, the tree shrew, acquired the power. Yet, I must confess that, long before you could waste your talent for progress, we wasted ours. You have wanted to be able to move with real freedom, to be able to fly. One of your small mouse cousins, we have a species here, does it not uncreditably, uncreditably, though not very graciously, and some, the squirrel lot, can slide a little on the air. But you, the leaders of the mammal line, you can't fly at all. You have danced, and forgive me if I note, looking at your physique, that such dancing must be very clumsy. Being the turn of a fish in water, let alone the sweep of a bird on the wing, you are creatures caught in their own egg membrane. If I so put it, all ligated and bound, ligated, 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 and bound. At last, you now fly, in a way, I understand, but more like a flying fox. And alas, not as we did, though we did it in an unwise exultation for fun. Since he seems so imperturbable, I thought I would answer them. Then, your frame, I remarked, doesn't look even as suitable as ours for dancing or flying. That is an essential part of my story, he replied, going on evenly. As I was saying, millions of years ago, nearly all the birds, out of sheer joy of living, leaped into the air. They could no longer wait or endure the plodding ways of life on earth. They gave up the patient fingering of things in order to swim free in the greater ocean of the sky. They hankered for the lovely, lazy freedom of the sea, the perfection of rhythmic movement, and they spent the gift of their new high energy in recapturing that bodily rapture that seemed lost forever when life crawled out onto the muddy, dusty, rough and heavy land. They treated the land simply as a bridge they could cross, a bridge from which they might spring from a lesser freedom to a greater. Of course, it was a mistake, an attempt to win a freedom which, at that level, could only be an irresponsibility. 
I wish to hurry on to new experiences before the earlier, slower, harder ones had been mastered. But not all the birds made this mistake. Not all. We penguins, in particular, abstained from that headlong flight that escaped from close-up understanding. Some birds, as you probably know, first flew, then forgot how to fly. They had sold their hands for wings, and then never recovered what they had sold. They made the worst of both worlds. They could neither enjoy nor create. But we, the penguins, never flew. We avoided that oubliette into the void. Oubliette. O-U-B-L-I-E-T-T-E. His third eye, his third eyelid flickered over his eye. I smiled in reply. I was perched, as usual, in the window ledge. And he was preambulating majestically up and down the floor, quacking this astounding story. This altered what we, in our pride, have taken to be the one track of evolution. Well, he ruminated, I think I may say the penguins, on the whole, haven't been bad fellows. We were no worse a stock from which to start the final climb to the summit of understanding than the base from which you lot, your lot made their sortie. The small apes, and before them, the tree shrews. Our lot were kindly, social, fond of fun. And though yours may have had more native curiosity, perhaps we were more largely endowed with the sympathy which is the understanding of the heart. And, he paused, and I thought that through his bill came a sound resembling a human sigh, and which exacts as high a price as does any other form of exploration and daring trust. You know, that when the first white men found our poor cousins on the seashore of this continent, our cousins, taking these men to be rather unshapely second cousins. For we have the belief in our bones that friendship is the sense of life. Went up to the visitors and, since we build our homes of stones, offered the newcomers a few good pebbles to help them in house building. And we bowed to indicate that they were welcome and would have our help if they needed it. He paused and I thought I saw his bill going a little higher into the air. The men seized our defenceless cousins and threw them, alive, into boiling water in order to wring a little oil from their poor bodies. I confess, I was looking at the floor when he finished his sentence. I heard, I had heard the story before, but... Coming from the mouth of an imperial penguin, well, I went more pink with shame for my species than I'd been when I came out that first bath. Seeing my confusion, it went quickly on. As I've said, the stock was not without promise, for indeed these poor people of the coat were somewhat decadent. The stock they and we sprang from was brighter than they are now. Or had been for long. Anyhow. One day a group of us. 
under some pressure of events about which I am still uncertain, perhaps the arrival of mammals such as the bear, decided to move, to leave the coast and strike into the unknown. I think it must have been some intrusion that made us move, for we claim, at least our women do, again his eye flickered, that we, the oldest of the birds, were actually on this continent when, as its flora still shows and its coal measures bear witness, it was part of the primal continent near the equator. The women, then, claim that everyone else is an alien. The fact is, we did decide to move, to go south. Cold is a great friend. The greatest plenty of life in the sea crowds up near the ice. The greatest animals the world has ever seen, the giant whales, choose to live there too. Life like stimulant. I looked out at the warm mugginess and he took in my glance and read it. When you have gone through the ice, then you may come to open water again. When you have been through the glacial age, then you must rest. For you have won. It was a bold trek, that, to leave the coast and the good fishing, and to seek an unpromised land, where the land itself seems to be rising until it touches the icy sky. And, where it touches, the volcanoes pour out flame. But it was just that, as you will see, that gave us quite half our natural capital. Well, the waddling ancestors came over the pass across which you have been towered lately and found their destiny. He bowed, now you must be tired. Tomorrow I will be able to explain better. As my words are still few and ill-chosen, it will be easier for you to understand what I have to have yet to tell you if we walk around the place. There you will see actual illustrations of what I would like to describe. I need hardly tell you that I was ready to be taken to the presence as soon as he was prepared for me the following day. As soon as I had joined him, he strode out, I trotting alongside him like a small child beside a very big and bulky nurse. As we went down the little street, the people bowed to him and he placed his hand on his breast at every salutation. What you have seen, he remarked, looking sideways and down at me as we went along, is but a corner of our small but rich heritage. We had left the village behind, and instead of taking the way towards the bathing canyon, we skirted the precipices, concealing it. This, he began again, perhaps the best time of the year to see the whole place. I should explain to you why. That queer childish hymn came into my mind. There is no night in heaven, I asked. Is it never dark here? Hardly ever, he replied, but the volume of light alters considerably. Do you never see the clear sky? Very seldom and then not so clearly as you can on a fine night or day outside. That's rather a disadvantage, I rejoined unreflectively. On the contrary, he took me up, except for that we should be incapable of living here. But, for a moment, look at the view. He had strolled up to 
where a long slope now touched the foot of a remarkable precipice. As we turned around, with our backs to it, the view that met us was, as I have no doubt, quite the finest I have ever seen, or ever shall see. Nowhere in the rest of the world, I believe, could there be such an arresting landscape. It wasn't large, it was, but it was quite large enough. The sky had lifted a bit, and the lighting was more settled, less pulsing, and of a more uniform tone. It was quite clear that one was looking at a huge crater, a crater as big as the one near the great African lakes, or the full-sized ones in the moon. A crater in which a country might be sunk quite comfortably. The crater wall ran around in a series of magnificent precipices, mostly cloud-capped. For a tide of white fog kept surging over them, and on the lip one saw numerous cataracts, while plumes of white smoke trailed up above the columns of spray. I have never seen what is called inanimate nature so vividly animated. You see, of course, said His Highness, that the peculiar effect we have here is due to the coming together of a number of rare factors. This place is still very active volcanically. The ground is warm in many places, and as you felt in the pool, in which we thought it might do you good to bathe, many warm mineral springs break out. We gazed round the huge hollow. It was, it was clear that the well-known richness of volcanic soil was having its effect. Long groves of trees, hung thickly with, with vines, gave the place an almost tropical look. And as we gazed downwards at the heart of these groves, I could see a considerable expanse of water. That is a central crater lake, the penguin remarked to me. All the waters drain into it. We never sounded it. Where they go to, no, no one knows. Why don't you sound it? I asked casually. Because we are interested in other explorations. What? I went on asking. What other explorations? I had gathered they were uninterested in the rest of the world. I think that first you should see all there is to see before hearing all we can tell you. It wasn't a rebuff. It was only a direction. First, I think I ought to tell you, he continued, it's about our climate. A moment ago, I said that this was the best time of the year to see the police. You may have discovered for yourself why that is so. The sun has just now left us to the polar night. When the sun's rays were exercised on our atmosphere, they clear it. This, of course, is a common place of radioactivity. The extraordinary lighting you have noticed is due to the cosmic radiation causing these auroras, which are so intense at midwinter that the light then is brighter, though more confused, than when the sun is over the horizon. Just when the sun is arriving, and when it is departing or just gone, there is a kind of balance between its light and its electrical illumination. And then, as I have said, our visibility is at its best, and the beautiful but confusing lighting caused by fluorescence is less. In the polar night, we are not in darkness, you see, but as it were, in a kind of rainbow dreamland of light. 
This has many consequences, which I will go into later. At present, I only want to point out how fortunate it is that you are here at this time. It allows you to have a better view of our territory. And there are also other, even more important advantages, which you will understand better when I can explain more. We spent that day and the next couple of weeks making expeditions over the whole place. I saw the path through which I had been brought and we went down to the shore of the central lake, the very floor of the crater. There was the air was distinctly heavier than on the level where the villages lay. But the one in which I stayed, though the place of residence of the government, was like a score of others, built on the same contour. Few of these people lived near the lake itself, though the spot was perhaps the most beautiful of all the lovely places in that sunken country. The water was generally of a quality of violet. I never remember seeing anywhere else. There must had been some chemicals in the solution in it. And as the variegated sky changed through the hues of the spectrum, the lake glowed like a peacock's neck. A number of small rivers wound their ways quietly through deep meadows and fed this water still, and still unfed this still water. I think I could stay here for good, I remarked one day when the King Penguin and I returned from a survey that now had given me a pretty comprehensive idea of the place. We have naturally considered that that might be your wish, he replied, with his unusual quiet manner of anticipating my thought. But before you could think of that, you would have to know a great deal more about this place. I suppose there is no place in the world where so much seems to be presented, and, in actual fact, so little is given. The third eyelid flickered several times before he resumed. You see, though you have seen what I grant is a wonderful appearance, you have, in point of fact, not the slightest idea of what is behind all this. I thought he was going to give me a lecture on the simple life, good, free government, and the general need of being less human and more bird-like. But I was mistaken. He meant, as he always did, precisely what he said. That place was odd. Odder than it was lovely. And that is saying as much as one can. His next remark, though a question, was a bit uncanny. Have you ever heard of Arctic hysteria? I said I had heard that living north of the Arctic Circle, even the toughest men might become odd and excitable. I might even see and hear things that weren't there. Yes, said the wise old bird. It's true. No doubt we are very considerably acclimatised. And yet, even we have to take care. Then, seeming to change the subject, he asked another question, 
are you interested in mutations? Again, I was able to say that I supposed I knew as much as the next field naturalist about the things they hadn't been discovered, about the important problems of breeding. This led to a third question. Have you studied cosmic radiation? There at last, I was able to give a flat no. Then he did not allow himself to do a bit of linking up. All three are very close to each other, and I may say that their lies are main interest. Of course, all this from a bird would still rather have shocked me, but save for human highbrow moments like that, I was already getting to think that behind that massive bill and boldly, uh, b- yeah, boldly, boldly staring bird's eyes, there was a man's mind looking at, out at me. Indeed, I may say a mind certainly better than most men's. Take the cosmic radiation first, he remarked in his quiet, slightly quacking lecturer's voice. Yes, yeah, slightly quacking lecturer's voice. You have gathered, of course, that we are right on the South Pole. As I remarked to you some while ago, when congratulating you on arriving when the visibility conditions are so good, what you see and see through is the Aurora Australis. The cosmic radiation which pours in at either pole, which after three or four collisions, at least hits things slowly enough for us to see the luminous echoes these southern lights. I'm sure now that it is this radiation that causes polar hysteria. The tremendous electrical charge, as one would expect, upsets the nervous system, not used to being exposed to it. Indeed, I am now sure that we ourselves, though acclimatised to the place, couldn't live here with this radiation if it were not for the fact that the volcanic heat throws up that cover of cloud on it. In it, the radiation is screened, so we get a constant illumination and are safe from the invisible rays. I feel sure that a clear sky could not sufficiently screen the deadly short rays. But what's that got to do with mutations? I said. I had noticed that the flora was very odd. As far as I could remember, I hadn't seen a bush or a shrub or any grass that I could identify. Though some looked like queer derivatives of forms which we are familiar. Everything was his reply. Literally, it accounts for everything. For the way we live, for the reason we are undisturbed, for the simplicity of our way of life, which, grant me, you find a little homely, Perhaps rather unnecessarily, I said, you must explain. Again came a question. Did you notice the animals which drew your sled? I remarked that I had seen them ahead of me in a poor light, but when I was up and about, they had been led away. Well, to be brief, for you don't need more than the outline to form a general opinion, our principal interest 
has been in the problems and possibilities of directing of directed breeding. As you'd probably suspect, if you thought it over, this place has a very high mutation rate because every living thing is being bombarded with rays that strike right at the nucleus of the chromosomes, right at the genes. As a consequence, we suffered for ages from the appearance of freaks, wild mutational sports. This was not particularly dangerous to us. However, since our oily feathers give us much protection, and when the egg is hatching, its shell being a line of lime protects it. And even then, the egg is always fully covered by one of the parents. But with plants and other animals, it was very confusing. I remarked that I had noticed a number of plants that seemed very odd to me. Not merely plants, he remarked, putting aside some grass with his foot. He seemed to be watching the ground with an extraordinary concentration peculiar to birds. Suddenly he pounced on something with his beak. When he turned to me, he was holding in it, with delicate care, a small lizard. Then, rapidly slipping the small animal between two of his fingers and holding it close to me, he remarked, Do you notice anything odd about this little creature's scales? Look particularly down towards the tail. I scanned it with care. Some of the scales have curious fringed ends, I replied. That's it, he remarked, with vivid interest. You see the significance? It is, of course, of great interest to us. But here, you see, is a lizard beginning, as we believe we began millions of years ago, to transmute scales into feathers. This little creature is an actual mutation. If it doesn't knock up against some cancelling mutation, I shouldn't be surprised if it turns into some creature like the Achiopoterix. Uh, the first feathered lizard, and so give rise to a whole new family of birds. It was because we were always coming across things like this, he said, gently putting the small creature on the grass again and letting it run away, that we decided to learn about mutation and radiation. That's our great, our predominant interest now. Indeed, I think we may now say that we have at last succeeded in making the great tempest that spins through space crack some of the nuts of knowledge for us. First, naturally experimented with plants. We found out how and when to expose them to the sky. The proper time of the year, as the radiation fluctuates, and how far up in the altitude range. I think it's quite likely we should never have got as far as we have had. We not also discovered that some of the rocks here are highly radioactive in themselves. It was the discovery, I believe, that was decisive. It allowed us, in the end, to balance one charge against another, as it were. In consequence, we can now produce what we might. I believe, core results of precision. That's why I asked you if you have noticed the sled animals. There are some of our products. In a word, what has become our, our absorbing aim is to see whether 
we can unite some of the knots into which evolution has wound itself. As you know, all animal and plant life is inevitably becoming more and more specialised. And eventually, if things are not unravelled, there will be no further possibility of originality or freedom left to any species, even if they do not become extinct because of their powerlessness to respond creatively to their environment. They will become living fossils, incapable of enjoying any enterprise, liberty or creativeness. What we then do is to regenerate the future, which has become specialised. Those animals which drew you, well, come along and see the kennels. He had been leading me up a slope, and I saw in front of me lines of low hutches. Then he gave his low penetrating whistle, and out of the small doors, bounding and dancing on their hind legs, came some of the most lithe and active creatures I had ever seen. They were seals once, he remarked, but, you see, they are now regeneralized. And they were. Here was something which beat H.G. Wells, Dr. Moreau, all hollow. The front flipper had become, or perhaps I ought to say, had gone back to being, a kind of broad, powerful hand enabling the creatures to bound along in the way that made the progress of the sled so swift and so pulsing. Their carriage and gait were similar to the powerful large-headed kangaroos. They stood up with their hands on his shoulders, their bright eyes darting all over the place, and a strange variety of cheerful noises, noises coming from their mouths. I know what they mean, he remarked, in another generation or so. If we don't stabilise experiment at the present moment, they'll be speaking. On the whole, though, I think they'll be happier as creatures mainly of emotion and action rather than thought and organisation. Even when you give freedom, one freedom means that you must deny yourself another. In a society such as ours, tied by a true cooperation, perhaps it is better that some should have the utmost freedom of thought and others an equal uncompensatory freedom of feeling. You see, as seals, they had in them a very strong endowment of kinesthetic apprehension. In them, life probably expresses itself most fully in movement. He said something to them, and they raced away back to their homes. Then, turning to me, you see, this is why we don't need machines, and never again shall. For what are machines but clumsy, stiff, artificial hands put upon our hands? just as a mutilated creature might be given an artificial limb. But if you can grow whatever you want, why toil to make it of clumsy dead material? That's our goal, to win back the freedom that we, the warm-blooded creatures, lost when we emerged from the reptile stage. We can already make quite good replacements of the lost parts of our limbs lost parts of limbs. I see too that you've noticed we have recovered our fingers. That was one of our first distinct triumphs. He stated his proposition very quietly, and the example he had given me in these charming seal creatures was certainly not alarming. Yet when I thought it over, 
hundred odd questions came surging into my mind. My first effort to state my puzzlement was perhaps a little crude. Do you really know what you're up to? I asked. I mean, have you really found out what life wants to do and vow to bring it to its goal? He didn't seem to be surprised at my question. On the contrary, I think he was rather pleased. What he said was, well, now you'll find a visit to the hospital quite interesting. I believe, I think tomorrow, we'll spend the morning in the hospital and then in the afternoon you'll be able to appreciate the laboratory all the more. As you might expect, they are adjoining. The next day, we took a trail that led us to the other side of the crater. Not long after we had passed the lake, I saw a series of buildings on a spur. After a few more hundred yards of walking, it was clear this was not a village, but a series of special houses. We were greeted at the door by the creature who evidently had this whole department in its care. My guide and he exchanged some remarks and, throwing open a door, he took us into a ward. This is ward number one, said my instructor. It is the accident ward. As I looked down the row of couches, I saw that not only were they occupied by those birds, but that there were also some couches on which lay the seal creatures and several other forms of animals I had not seen before. We are carrying out repairs here, he said, turning to me. Would you step over here and look at this case? With his hand, he raised the paw of one of the seal creatures. It was crushed very badly, he explained, under a stone. It was not a case of just healing, a serious lesion, but of making the whole hand pattern repeat itself, as does in the womb. I looked down at the hand, and sure enough, through the broken tissue, it was clear that certain growing edges were beginning. I can use no other word to sprout. If you will step over here, he said, you'll see the same process of repair advanced about two weeks. He held up a hand on which curious dwarf fingers were appearing, and the old broken tissue was withering away as though it were dead skin of a blister. Of course, once we have the right stimulant to set the full repair process going, Accident restoration is the simplest of all our work. By this time, we had reached the end of the ward, and this hospital superintendent had thrown open the door of what I suppose should be called the small operating theatre. A patient was on the table, and through various filters and from various tubes, an injured limb was being radiated. Most of the light, he said, is brought through certain filters direct from the sky. And, of course, to balance it, we have in these other tubes wavelengths of other intensities derived from the radioactive rocks. Here, I think, we may say we have instruments of such delicacy that we can really touch the mainspring and the minute powerful generators of life itself. The next door opened into another world. These, said my companion, are more interesting biological problems. 
These are not accident cases. Here we are attempting to unravel the mystery of disease. Most of them, I remarked, look old. Yes, he remarked, you're right. You see, ill health hardly becomes a problem for us until a certain age. If anyone feels or shows impairment of vitality, we soon can diagnose it. Just step across here and I'll explain that. Yes, he remarked, you're right. Oh, sorry. His lieutenant, who seemed to follow his thoughts exactly, had already opened a small door inside the wall of the ward. It led to a room rather smaller than the operating theatre. Would you mind, my guide said, standing on that small square there? I found that I was facing a panel in the wall that looked like a black, light black glass. He shut the door and we were in total darkness. Then I heard a switch snap. The panel I was facing began to glow. It increased in brilliancy. And very rapidly I saw outlined on it a shadowy, iridescent figure that seemed composed of layers of very coloured light. I heard my guide's voice at my shoulder. Of course, I am completely ignorant of the charges that compose your species. But just making a guess, because we are both warm-blooded creatures, I should surmise that your vitality is now fairly good. Moreover, I am pretty sure from the way some of those fringes and I saw the shadow of his big finger indicating where certain bright lines seemed thrusting their way into less bright zones on the lit panel. Of growing that any vitality you may have lost is now being rapidly restored. It is here that we check up on the health of our community and by this method we can often tell when there is too much expenditure of energy. And then we can warn the patient to balance his life better. He threw open the door and led me back into the ward. The problem here, he said, is the most complex problem of all. I doubt if we shall really solve it until we are quite certain what the meaning of life is. These patients here, of course, they cannot understand the word we are saying to each other are, as you noticed, all elderly. Some of them are 80. Further, they are all suffering from, or perhaps, should I say, I should say, they are all burdened with tumours. All our diagnostic work has not yet settled that problem. What are these tumours? Are they life or death? This is a question. Is this a question life is asking of us? Because it has superior knowledge and wishes us to understand the mystery, the secret of which it knows, or is it life itself held up by the problem of general control <coughs> and asking us to find the solution? <coughs> As we talked, we strolled from that building to another, some distance away. The one we had left was hushed. The one we approached was a contrast. Before we entered, I realised it wasn't for patients. As we passed through the door, the din of healthiness doubled, and we saw that it rose from a bathing pool full of seal creatures and young penguins. They were plunging and diving, rushing around in a wonderful underwater, racing, circling, somersaulting, 
until the water seethed and bubbled as though it had been aerated. Every now and then a newcomer rushed out from what I took to be dressing cubicles. Though it did seem a little necessary for creatures who couldn't be naked and ashamed and for whom the water was as much home as the land. And just as frequently someone from the pool slipped from view through one of these small doors. We strolled along. The noise was too great for conversation though. It was the happiest din I've heard. And leaving the court, we entered into a second area through a door at the end. This, however, was paved, though the paving was so smooth and polished, you might have taken it for a sheet of water. The place was quite as full as the other, but didn't immediately give the same impression of being crowded. That was because everyone was moving with beautiful precision in a single, wonderfully elaborate pattern. The whole company, though it filled the place, was dancing with such ease that the units flowing in and out of each other suggested the integration of a great loom in full play. When I was in Europe, I was once rather keen on the ballet. Perhaps you've cared for it. It was a rage once upon a time. Well, you should see the kind of choreography that super seals and penguins can extemporize. The one sort of creature had a sinuousness that, as I've said, I'd never seen before or since any living body. The other moved with a precision of swing, with a pivotal balance which gave just the right solidity and accent and emphasis to the almost liquid movement of the partners in the pattern. I recovered, however, from my interested surprise and remembered why we were there. A laboratory, I questioned. We were going to see a laboratory, I thought. He nodded affirmatively and strode on to a third court. Here the population seemed to be older and were not moving about. They were ranged in rows, and here again, the greater part of them were the penguin or the seal type, though there were occasional examples of other species. But it was the sound, not the sight, that arrested them. They were producing the strangest music I've ever heard. They were, I suppose, you have to call it singing. One could pick out a deep whistling, a curious Ulation. That's U-L-U-L-A-T-I-O-N. And even odder fluting sounds. The only human music I can at all liken, or liken it to, is that wonderful thing which Brahms composed towards the end of his life. Do you remember it? It was written, I believe, for the greatest clarinet player of the day. Well... When those penguin creatures put up their beaks and let the air flute and bubble from their raised necks, you would hear the strange, desolate, but exultant music, which in that clarinet piece always seems to me like the cry half of triumph, half of anguish. That some bird creature, aware of the whole longing of life, might utter. Beside them broke out that baying chorus of the seal creatures. I listened, half stunned, half fascinated, till I heard my own tongue quacking in my ear. Yes, this was the laboratory. 
I looked around, my face expressing what my voice couldn't express in that tide of sound. Complete bewilderment. He waved me out, and we went through a door in the farthest wall, out to where the quiet countryside waited for us, and the sound dwindled. As we strolled along, he remarked, You are surprised at that being a place of research, of course. You only saw half of it. I thought he was going to say something about my not being a trained observer. But he reassured my vanity by adding, I didn't take you into the other side for fear of disturbing the workers themselves. Where were they? I asked. In behind those little doors, through which you saw the testes passing in and out. You see, first of all, as you know, that the organism is a single unit. Our work is done not merely on parts of the living creature, but on it as a whole. Furthermore, while we do find out certain amounts when we nurse and heal the old and the injured, naturally found out much more if we work on the fit and the young. We study the arch of life from two sides, where it rises and where it declines. But, I asked, do you have to keep them so noisily amused while they are waiting for their physical examination? His third eyelid shot across his eyes. No, he answered. And one, could almost hear the smile in his voice. No, you did really see part of the experiment, not merely the waiting place. We want to study life, he said, not merely when it was when it is up against check, conflict and defeat. If we are really to know it, we must know it at its highest. So, you see, we have the youngest and freshest in the first two courts, and in the third those at the peak of their strength. But what were they doing? Weren't they amusing themselves, I asked? Yes, and just as any creature that is really healthy, they were creating too. I don't understand. Well, we know that life, even when it was most healthy, is not really at the top of its form, unless it is expressing itself. It's letting the rhythm in it. In it. The rhythm of which it is made, find utterance in the world round it. Those people you saw were, as it were, turning themselves up. Then, when each has reached his full tonicity, he runs in. At the other side of those doors are panels, like the one you stood in front of, and there observers are making readings all the time, studying the field of each body, Seeing its height of potential, before starting their exercises, they are checked, and against the datum line of their unaroused vitality, the pitch that they can reach there when they are in full form is scored. So we get some idea in terms of calibration of radiation, which I fear I cannot explain in detail to you, of the height of vitality which we should aspire, the pitch of consciousness at which we might live. So we hope, in the end, to be able to plot the curve of life and discover the level of intensity of consciousness at which we ought to live if we are to fulfil the life within us during the term in which it manifests itself. I own, I was a little puzzled by all this, 
and I couldn't quite make out what he was driving at. Was this, I wondered, some queer bid for rejuvenation and perpetual youth? Perhaps he saw there wasn't much use telling me more at that point, but he strolled on in silence in a little while. The path leading towards home, after we had gone a few hundred yards, crossed a level surface covered with small billows of turf. To break the silence, I asked, what are those? Thinking they might be some odd natural formation. That, he remarked over his shoulder, that's the cemetery. Then do you have death? Why not? It isn't death that puzzles us. It is the failure of death to be a natural process. Birth and death balance each other. But as there can be a healthy birth, so there should be a healthy death. And as there can be a clumsy and dangerous birth, so there can be a clumsy and dangerous death. That is our problem. I think we know the term of life as we know the term of birth. Birds are, perhaps by their nature, more familiar with the mystery of hatching than our mammals. I don't know, I don't think we should fall easily into the illusion that life, in any one of its forms or its aspects, is complete in that aspect. No, when our people or any of our living wards become old, what we want for them is a clean and healthy delivery into another experience. So, you see, what we are doing in the ward you've just left, the last ward, is not to make these creatures immortal or even to recover, but to see how far we can smooth out the knots of life so that they may easily born, may be easily born and well born into their next experience. I confess, I had never thought about life in quite so comprehensive a manner as that. After a moment's pause, I said, I thought that you were attempting to make a world here in which everything would be stabilised. I suppose mechanical notions are so firmly fixed in my head that I can't believe you would really trust life as far as death. I thought somehow it would all end happily ever afterwards, in a perpetually revolving machine. Yes, he said, and I think he nearly chuckled. I know he put out his hand and touched my shoulder. Yes, we don't dictate life as its acolytes. We only ask whether we may be permitted to be of assistance. The machine can only repeat, and if we repeated, we should be machines and untrue to the staunchness, creative mystery of the life within us. Stanceless, stanceless, not stanceless, stanceless, creative mystery of life within us. All we may hope to do is to bring into consciousness, without thwarting that power, some of its mystery potentiality. Then, I said tentatively, over a sense of nervous humour, you don't have incubators? No. And now I was sure he chuckled. No. We still think that life, and when it takes a hand, should be allowed to have its head. And that, if I may go a step further in atomy, means trusting the heart. You see, we know enough to know how little we know. I can tell you this. There is something superbly mysterious in parenthood. 
I'm not talking from vague speculation. We did experiments. We found out, as we are always finding out, where nature lets us help, and where she has always told us what kind of help she wishes us to give. Something goes on between the parents and the chick, even when it is in the egg. Probably it is a radiation which we have not yet cracked. Like most natural balances, it is a real balance. Life, when it is not thwarted, is a very just balancing. What is good for the chick is also good for the parents. Then, gain something from this fostering period, as does their child. This line of thought again gave me almost too much to turn over in my mind. I broke the silence by saying, we had a philosopher who started us on our present scientific career. And he said, obey nature in order to rule her. Yes, he remarked meditatively. Yes, I think that may account for certain things I have gathered about the human race. Certainly our motto would be, control nature in order to obey her. Well, he said after a pause, that you see, is our secret in a nutshell. We have the direct power, as you would say, over life. But, as I would say, to work in with life, to work in the very web of being, elsewhere intelligent beings can only have an indirect power. And, having this, we don't need anything else. As I have told you, we don't know the end of the story. Perhaps we, shall, we never shall. But we do know we are on the way, that we have as much truth as we can grasp, and that it is yielding us the fullness of life. He was silent for a little while, then he went on in a lighter tone. Of course, though our lives look idyllic and simple, you see that just behind the appearance is power, the vastest power life has ever known, which till now no form of life has ever been permitted to handle. We expose ourselves to a tornado of pelting force, a force which can take matter into to pieces and make flesh rot into a pulp. But, like a carver of hard stone, we may manipulate what we hold in our hands in the cutting stream of this force, and, by skilled manipulation, make the stream of destruction carve new living forms for us in living tissue without shedding a drop of blood. We build up what we need, or rather what we believe life needs from us. We take evolution's slow ideal and going into the furnace of power, we cast for it what it would have taken millions of years for it to for forge on the anvil of events. When the life process has become thwarted in some blind alley, we draw it back, we remelt it, we supple it, and give back the creative power of freedom to those who had all but lost it. He stopped, and even in his quiet, steady quack, I thought I caught a slight tremor of emotion, of daring, Sighted triumph. So this was what this odd place was for. This was what these strange creatures, or at least this master creature, lived for. 
One question, I said. How? Yes, he remarked. You ought to have that question answered before I put my final one to you. You were going to ask, weren't you? How is it that I know as much as you do, as I do? Sorry. I know as much as I do. Well, I replied, a little embarrassed. Of course I am a bit taken aback. And of course, he replied quickly. I can't really explain to you how I know, unless you have the kind of mind I have. Mind you, he went on almost, a little hurriedly. Mind you... I don't want to suggest that your mind has not channels of apprehension far better than mine. But I think it must be clear to you that though we are both warm-blooded animals and so have converged on intelligence, we come to understanding from different sides and so with different insights. I can explain this a little by pointing out that we birds have two gifts that you mammals lack. One is the emotions and the other is the senses. To be brief, in our development, we have merged. By nature, we have a profound sensitiveness. Although we ourselves may seem massive and even stolid to you. You must remember that our whole metabolism is faster and our vital heat greater. Our lives or as lengthy as yours, but we live more intensely than you do in the allotted 70 years. Of course, high emotional intuition, not governed by intelligence, will not lead to understanding. But it is an invaluable spur to the sympathy that is the understanding of the heart. The other thing that adds so greatly to our knowledge is the strange sensory gift. As you know, in all the pigeon family, it is present as a sensitiveness to the Earth's magnetic field. Their homing instinct is possible by their ability to attend to this frame of reference and so know their bearings. And all the migratory species also carry their own power to apprehend invisible tracks. Now, put those two things together. He turned to me, his head sideways, but I am afraid I looked at him blankly. Well, he said, not wishing to expose my dullness. It's quite obvious that if a creature has a profound sensitiveness to emotional states, these, I may tell you, we now know of a form of radiation. And if he can, through his own nervous system, also pick up the wavelengths of the Earth's magnetic field, what would you expect? Again, I can only look stupidly expectant. You are probably aware, he continued with courteous patience, that the homing instinct of birds can be thrown out completely when they fly into near a radio station. At least, I thought, I began to see light. Do you mean... That's it, exactly, he said. Of course, we can't get words, nor do we need to. But we get the impulses. I have, you see, a very shrewd and indeed rather sad view of the progress you, our companions, as the advanced scouts of life have made. And that brings us back to your problem, your place in this. It was a question, 
It was the question. My mind had gone through another of those sudden reversals, that as in the beginning. I had found the most trying element in the strangeness of my adventure. First I had thought them human. Then I had thought of them as deadly birds. Then I had had to switch back again and realise that they were alternative humans. Alternatives to humanity. Now I had gradually, day after day, come to feel that here was an innocent retirement. A real city of refuge, among creatures of a simple virtue and with freedom from all man's problems, childishly ignorant of progress and struggle and adventure and doubt. And now, in a moment, I had to face up to the fact that here were body-mind standing up to risks, under pressures, making experiments, exposed to dangers beside which our old-fashioned revolutions and battlefields were just nursery naughtiness. Again, he read my thoughts. I think you're right. I don't feel that I think you're running away. As I have said, I'm not at all sure your physique could stand this mysterious, highly charged climate. And though we, on our part, will be quite ready to let you try, for we should all gain knowledge, and we all believe that we, the bird leaders, and you, the mammal leaders, must one day converge and direct the life process in its further advance. Yet, it is for you to choose, and your deepest wish may be your soundest guide. As we continued our discussion, we had come back to our old place. We were in the administrative building in his inner office. He was pacing up and down with a pendulum steadiness. I was perched, crouched up in the window niche. We were silent. Then he came over to me and put out his queer massive hand. It was as strong as stone and one could feel the great vitality in him. Goodbye, I know enough to know that there is no chance or accident. You came here and, I, and have learned, and we have learned too. The process we serve comes from behind all material appearance and thence it returns again. We shall all have learned, all the more if for the moment we don't quite know what to make of this particular piece of knowledge. So I was to go back I felt, I own, a moment's self-centred relief. I was better go back to one's own kind than to live with strangers, however kind, however wise. Better to be with one's own than even with the good and the enlightened. But I take a little credit to myself that in the middle of my self-interest there did cross my mind a thought with these extraordinary hosts of mine. One question, I said, getting up and feeling a kind of strength come to me just by asking it. But I didn't get far enough to put it into words. Thank you, he said. I hoped you would ask that. It is, isn't it? If we let you go out, you will tell the world. And the world will come and we shall... He stood destroyed? Yes, I said. 
That's it. That's pretty sure, isn't it? I hope we'd let you go, he said. Even if the risk were all you think. But why should your side always fail? Why should your side always fail when given knowledge? And our side always fail when using trust. As that happens, that choice at present is not put before us. No one can enter this place unless we wish it. First of all, no one will ever suspect this place is here. But surely they will fly over it, I asked. Probably, if they do, they will look down on such a closed cloud pack that they will mistake it for a snowfield. But then they'll come across the snow with motor sleds, I suggested. No, I repeat, it is impossible for anyone to enter this place unless we wish it. This is one of our simplest initial discoveries, made when we were seeking the balance I told you of, between the radioactivity of parts of the ground here and of the cosmic radiation that pours in on this spot. As you've seen, we use them for our work to balance one against the other, but to prevent intrusion, we could use them again together. Then no one could enter. The semicircular canals of the air, on which the balance of all mammals depends, work through a liquid acting as a spirit lamp. Tip that to the slightest degree, and it is impossible for the person so touched to stand straight. He has no choice but to lie on the ground in hopeless vertigo. If we direct a band of a particular radiation to the crater rim, no one can cross that frontier. And if we choose, we have only to alter the wavelength a little while he lies there, and his whole nervous system will be put out of gear. All memory, all will, and all consciousness must vanish. But no permanent damage is done. The moment we raise the barrage, the man can recover, though probably he will have to have a great deal of amnesia and so will not be able to remember why he had come. Of course, if he was too long exposed, his recovery would be dubious. You're safe, I said. I think so, he replied. I think life intends us to work <coughs> on our own a little longer so that we may have more to give when the time comes for our meeting. And then I saw the third eyelid flutter across that bright, seemingly expressionless eye. And of course, the level quacking went on. Of course, we have the psychological defence before there will be any need to the defence of advanced physics. You see, if you will run over your story in your mind, you will realise no one will believe you anyhow. That's the question, said my Yana, suddenly getting up. He put out his hand. Well, thank you for letting me tell you my story. No, of course, I don't want anything. I only want you to answer one question. You don't believe a word of it. You're the dozenth person. Dozenth person. I've told the story to. I tell it once a year, on the anniversary of my ejection from paradise. Eden on ice, I call my story. Your own that beside it. Shangalar isn't even small beer. Yes, I said anxiously, hurriedly, 
Yes, it leaves Tibet and all could all that cold and tepid or Yes, he said. I knew you'd say that. They all do. But the question, you know, isn't that. The question I ask all of them is just this. Do you believe a word of it? He looked at me with a straining anxiety I found more painful every moment. This man, this harmless, nice fellow, desperately wanted me to believe this was a true story. It would mean literally an immense amount to him if I could truthfully say I believed it. I tried. The word stuck. I just couldn't be. I didn't have anything to say. The bird was a prophet too, he said. I didn't know it would mean so much. I think I'd rather have had an albatross around my neck. Good night. And he was gone. But if he ever had had an albatross around his neck, then I was wedding guest. I was his wedding guest. Certainly after a strange night in which my dreams were lit by low clouds on which baleful fires flickered and sank. A sadder, if not a wiser man, I rose the morrow morn. And that was wingless victory. Not D-wingless victory, sorry. Wingless victory. And that was a weird tale. Hope you enjoyed it. And my voice was clear throughout the music. That was, that's been my longest one so far. Uh, got on for two hours and 15 minutes dance. So I will stop. And thanks for listening. If you got all the way to the end, hope you enjoyed it. And may there be many more episodes from Pablo's channel. Bye bye.